we're back and we've added a super friend this is above the break episode 24 and this is the official 2022 nba finals preview as always this is nevin brown and i'm joined by james piercy and somebody else yes we brought someone from my past (laughs) from my days in high school back when i was admittedly a far worse person (laughs) that is the man laughing our special guest is gardner royce aka guardy the waldorf school most handsome alumni a montgomery blair blazer a tough buckets legend known as the thunder down under for his post play and soft touch Formerly of WRGB, CBS 6, somewhere in upstate New York. I believe no one can tell the difference between any of those little towns or cities. What have it. He was their go-to second-tier sports reporter telling you everything you ever needed to know about girls lacrosse, girls field hockey, and the reason why the shot clock needs to exist in basketball. And now he is of Atmosphere TV the nation's leading direct-to-business streaming service as a sports producer. Hoping we can get a little bit of money out of that for that plug, (laughs) but probably not. Gardner Royce, say what's up to our 12 fans and hopefully your parents this time. 12 fans, thank you. And thank you too for bringing me on. It's a a long time coming, long time listener, first time guest. I cannot wait to talk about my favorite sport. Um, And I think the best matchup that we could have gotten out of those final four teams. 100%. All right. Before we get into the meat of the episode, which I got to, I got to remember to do this every time we're recording this on Tuesday, May 31st, it's 318 on the East coast, which means it's 445 in St. John's Newfoundland. Did I do it right that time? You nailed it. Fuck. Yes. (laughs) You would be surprised first. Yeah, I know. I haven't gotten Newfoundland right once like always either go newfoundland new finland it's just it's been a mess guardy there's a reason they don't put me with a microphone in front of the camera and try to tell people how hard these kids tried to win a game i've got that covered for you <laughs> all right so we're gonna break down some news and then we're gonna give a eulogy for the heat ask some questions about that boston miami series which was kind of amazing and also kind of a horrible series it had a lot had a lot of stuff and then we're going to preview the finals between the golden state warriors and the boston celtics but first let's get to some news and this news we're bringing up because we have someone who's a professional who's worked as a a real sports broadcaster not just us phonies sitting behind our zoom walls pretending we know shit so CJ McCollum is joining ESPN as an analyst. And Gardy, I want to get your feelings on this because I feel like you got some big ones based on some tweets and some very recent previous conversation we just had. I love it. Um, just having listened to CJ when he's done guest appearances on different shows, his podcast, when he's a guest on other people's podcasts, he's incredibly knowledgeable. If he retired today, he would be one of the best, I think, athlete analysts on TV, wherever, whether it was TNT. Now, obviously, ESPN scoops him up. The thing that I have uh, from strong opinions on is ESPN's basketball product. 
um, their pregame, their halftime show, and their postgame show, which I think don't resemble a pregame, halftime, or postgame show. They bring in Stephen A. Smith, these guys that have their own individual shows, and you could discuss the merits of those. They bring them in, and essentially they do watered down, shorter versions of the same thing they do on their show instead of actually discussing the game at hand. So I think bringing in someone like CJ McCollum, JJ Redick has been great on some of these debate shows where they're actually talking about basketball. So I think, especially for ESPN, as they move forward, if they could transition to more basketball related conversations, I just think that's better for the fans. It's more informative and it's not just the same takey stuff that you see um, on ESPN kind of 90% of the time. All right. Um, so James, I don't know how much you watch ESPN broadcasts up in Canada. I don't even know if they they make it over the border. <laughs> Where <are> you? <laughs> what are your feelings on I, how much do you even know about CJ McCollum's um, previous, I guess, punditry? Yeah, not not much. I can't say that I've caught uh, CJ broadcasting very often in, in my memory, or at least I'm sure I caught a game or two, but I, I don't remember getting an impression. But uh, I will say that I agree with the more general point. A- absolutely, I, I would really like to see some like, you know, basketball analysis uh, on ESPN as opposed to just basically repurposing uh, first take around the game, you know? Like, it doesn't really it doesn't really work for me. I mean, I frankly, I have it on mute until the game starts, and, and then I don't usually watch halftime. You know, it's a good opportunity to go to the store or something anyway. So I, I, I agree. They could definitely use to sharpen up their product. I agree with both you guys a thousand percent. You know what we don't need before every basketball game? old people telling young people who's under more pressure. Like, I don't understand how in the NBA where all the contracts are guaranteed, the most common pregame, postgame, whatever comment is who's under more pressure, who has it on the line. He's got a guaranteed contract. These, these, they aren't at will employers. It's not like, Hey, Tatum, or let's use a more relevant example. Hey, bam, you're just not really coming through in the playoffs. Max contract is gone. Like, Revoked. Exactly. It's like yeah. <laughs> it, the, their topics are the worst. The commentary is the worst. They don't talk about what's happening on the court. And it's just like, how are you supposed to make people enjoy the game of basketball if you fundamentally don't care if they understand it? Yeah. Well or grow the game, especially to a younger audience that seems to you know be watching live sports or consuming it in different ways. It's like, telling them why this matchup or this game is important, I think is integral to the whole product continuing to exist and to generate fans who are, you know, learn it and understand what they're watching. All right. CJ McCollum, please, please retire. So you can do your calling of being an excellent analyst for ESPN. I will say this, the deal he got is going to get or got, it's definitely money well spent compared to whatever the fuck Tom Brady's about to get when he finishes <laughs> foot playing football, because I don't know who decided that Tom Brady was worth almost 40 million a year to be boring on TV, but that person gonna lose their job. <laughs> That's my hot take hot take. All right. Next bit of news. And I think this one also Pelicans related, which is amazing. Can't stay out of the news. Apparently, the Pelicans are not willing to offer Zion a fully guaranteed contract. There have always been kind of rumblings of that. There have been rumblings that Zion wouldn't accept any extension, even if it was the full max, and that he would maybe 
play on the qualifying offer or what have it and be an unrestricted free agent. So James, I'm asking you this one first. What do you think about this? Man, I, I think this is one of the most difficult situations to parse out in the league right now, to be honest with you, because on, on the one hand, when Zion's been available, you know, he, he he's almost unprecedented. Like his ability to generate two point attempts is pretty amazing. Like he's realistically, he's like, he's got Deon, he's got Deontay Jordan's shot chart, but he does the penetrating, you know, like, like he's the pick and roll ball handler and the finisher in, in the same play. Like he's, he's, he's remarkable. But on the other hand, I mean, the downsides are obvious. Like he, he, he's seldom healthy or available. And frankly, I anticipated this uh, with him coming into the league to toot my own horn. Uh, I, I, I thought there's no way that you can be like six, six, 285 pounds with that kind of vertical leap and, and not wreck havoc on your body, you know, and, and, and we're seeing it. So like, do we really have good reason to be optimistic that he he's going to be able to turn this around? I don't know. You know? So I, I, I don't really have a clear answer. It's like, um, it's a case of, of high highs and low lows, you know? What do you think, Gardy? I, I totally agree with what James said, but I also, I think that makes sense for the Pelicans. It would be hard to justify a fully guaranteed, but you could understand it if they were saying we've put so much on this young man's shoulders. And when he's healthy, he does look, you know, generational. Like you said, he, when he's healthy, that stretch of games were kind of unprecedented. Um, so I think it's okay that it's not fully guaranteed. Um, he probably gets, is it like a fifth, year option i mean i think they're going to pay him a ton of money um and the biggest thing i would imagine for both sides is get zion healthy because if zion's healthy and he continues to play like that he's going to have another massive contract coming down the line but he just hasn't been healthy i mean that's the that is the elephant in the room that's not even an elephant in the room because everyone's recognizing it yeah, I think it's uh, he's played like 85 games, 83 games, something in that range over the first three seasons. He hasn't had any like devastating kind of, um, I would say, he hasn't had a devastating joint altering injury, which can really sap athleticism. But anytime someone that heavy with a foot injury, I mean, there has to be concerns. This is one of these stories that's been floated that it creates talking points, but I feel like we all said the same thing. It's like, well, it's really hard to parse out what's going on because we don't know what not a fully guaranteed contract means in NBA terms. For instance, uh, the Michael Porter Jr. deal. I think it was like five years, 170 million in that range. First four years are fully guaranteed. Fifth year, not fully guaranteed, right? So if is that what the Pelicans are offering? Or are they going to do the Joel Embiid route where it's like, if you have an injury to a body part that is one of these, you know, body parts you've already injured, then you lose salary. We can void contract years, void salary, stuff of that nature. So without the details, it, it's really tough to say good deal for Zion, good deal for the Pelicans, which way is that personally, if I was the general manager, what I would want to do is I would say, Zion, we don't want to fully guarantee this contract. We want to extend you. We want you to be a Pelican for life. Nola loves you. What we're going to do is we're going to meet you halfway where we're going to give you a lot of money up front. We're going to give you maybe an opt-out 
because I think if you give a player an opt out, that's like a huge win for them. Maybe you do that so that that fifth year is an op player option for him and you put some protections in with injuries because we all see it when he's there. It's special, but it, he's just not there. And there's no right or wrong answer with this. But I think the bigger elephant in the room outside of his health is Zion's camp and his seeming desire to be a star and treated as such before he's necessarily earned it with the on-court stuff. Last thing I would just say to that is uh, I think they're like weird smorgasbord of a team that was built at the end of that season actually was like pretty good and yeah. fine and odd and maybe pushed a Phoenix team that we thought was better than it was. Um, but speaking of CJ, but bringing him back to a team that could have some upside and really push for playoff spots. I mean, that's great for them as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, you know, what's crazy is that six game series uh, between the Pelicans and Phoenix, their offensive rating best, best in the playoffs. I mean, it's only six games, small sample, but like that tells you the ups. I'm not, just think about that. The best offense in the playoffs, adding Zion. Get healthy, man. Give him the yes. money. Fuck it. Yeah. Fuck it. Give him the money. Get healthy. Let's let's have the big easy have some big fun. He'll bring Mardi Gras all year long, baby. Okay. That's the news. There's probably more news, but fuck the news. The real news is on the court because it's the playoffs. It's the time when the games actually matter. The 82-game regular season is an 82-game preseason for what we actually care about. But let's talk about the Miami Heat, and let's eulogize. They're kind of a dark, beautiful, twisted fantasy to borrow and probably mess up the word order from Kanye West. So I'm going to ask, who's got bigger feelings about this Miami Heat team? I don't know. I don't have super big feelings about them. No one's uh, got feelings about the Heat. That's well, you know you. not strong. Like they they were a really good team. They 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 had a really good season. Uh, I saw a quote from Kyle Lowry. He he said that it's a wasted season because any year that you don't win the championship is a wasted season. But I mean, I don't know how much credence you can necessarily lend that. Like it like it was a really good year. They made the conference finals. You know, what can you say? They got they got eliminated by a better team, frankly, in my opinion. Well, also, did they max out? What do you think? What do you well, guys think? Well, last thing I would say is, uh, or the thing that I would add is, I mean, Hero was clearly injured. I don't know what was going on with Lowry. Like Lowry just, like people were saying, didn't look like he was having to do the same conditioning tests that like the Heat have had to do for two decades. And he was probably injured or is that, did he just drop off a cliff? But those are two key pieces. Hero not playing, there were stretches of their offense, which can be ugly, even when heroes in where like, they just couldn't get a bucket. And so it's all on Jimmy Butler. And so I do think that that's also a factor in that uh, series. Yeah. So I would say, I would say to, to piggyback on that, I, I would, I would agree. Like whether they're maxed out or not is going to be contingent on can Lowry stave off age related decline. You know, he's 36. Like, is this who he is now? Uh, I, I believe he did have a hamstring injury through the playoffs, but like, you know, when you're 36, it's like you might just be living with that, right? And then, and then is Jimmy Butler ready for age-related decline? Because he's what, 34, 33, 34? You know, he's 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 getting up there, right? He he was pretty bionic in the playoffs, but any year can be that year that you just drop off. So, I would say that if they both look like themselves next year, the Heat are still in the running. 
You know, if if, if they don't, they're yeah, they're 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 gonna have to start asking some tough questions soon. They're also a transition three away. I know you're going to get to that from like making potentially making the finals again. And that's just unbelievable. So then we're having a totally different conversation, even if they lose in four or five games to the Warriors. Yeah. The the heat are weird to me because they, they're obviously a really good team, but they never really felt like a really good team. And that's just kind of bizarre. Their their net rating and their defensive rating were both pretty incredible. Their offensive rating is boosted by them being great in transition and generating a ton of steals, especially during the regular season. But I think people are sleeping on maybe their chances next year just on account of this team won the East. Granted, they only had to win the East with 53 wins, which we'll get to later in the episode. But that's not a lot of wins to win a conference um, historically. But they missed Bam Adebayo for a long period of time. Kyle Lowry was in and out. Jimmy Butler, you know, he's a beast, but he's kind of a guaranteed miss around 20 games a season. Duncan Robinson, who I think played the most games of any guy on the team this season. Did he die? Like, was there like, was it like a weekend at Bernie situation with him on the bench where they're like, shit, Duncan died. We can't let anyone know. We need the threat of his three-point shooting. Just the idea that he could come in to be there. So we're going to weaken that Bernie's him on the bench because he disappeared. And he's, you know, I think that might be the key to their future in terms of upgrading the roster. And then there's the Victor Oladipo question, which, you know, does he want to come back and do another prove it deal with the Heat? So, I mean, this is a team that realistically, if they're healthy or next season, Tyler Hero, I don't know if he can really make a substantial jump, but gets a little bit better. You know, this team could push 60 wins and then that's a championship contender. Can I jump in with, I know you might hey. get to that, but where do the heat go from here? Uh, I saw this thrown around on Twitter. Um, I think they should absolutely go after Bradley Beal and have some sort of package for Hero and Robinson and trade, whatever, whatever the case may be. Because to your point, I think you're describing the best version where the players stay healthy, where hero and Robinson's not a defensive liability and all of that. But I think it would make sense for both uh, sides. I think a player like Bradley Beal takes a lot off the shoulders of someone like Jimmy Butler. Um, I think they, they absolutely should try to upgrade this roster and they seemingly have some pieces, especially now with Strauss, who's making like what a million dollars, he's going to get paid more, but still, um, they've got pieces to to try and upgrade that around Jimmy and Bam if that's the way they want to go. So let's ask two Jimmy Butler related questions. We uh, already teased a little bit at one of them. So let's just get to the one that we teased a bit because you know we're not into that type of stuff. No cucks here. All right. So Jimmy <laughs> Butler's transition three that seemingly was a hit it. We we win, miss it, we lose. What are you guys' opinion on that? Because it was a massively divisive play, and I think in the moment, the initial reaction was, Jimmy, it's Al Horford. There is no help. You have a full head of steam. Go to the rack, get the bucket, or get the and one potentially just as good as a transition three. James, you want to take it? Yeah, I'll start. I'll start. First of all, I, I would push back on the notion of it's Al Horford. Like he, I, I thought Horford was in pretty, 
pretty strong position to, to, to defend the shot. And he's an excellent rim protector. So uh, to me, I, I thought Butler had the separation to, to take the three. I, I, I was really in support of, of the shot. I think it was a good shot. Uh, I'll tell you a couple of reasons. First of all, like there's this perception that Butler is just an abysmal three-point shooter uh, because he shot like 23% on, on the regular season this year. But if you look at his career, that's a little bit of an aberration, right? He, he He's actually more of just like a mediocre three-point shooter. And, and through these playoffs, he shot, I think, 34%. And I think he shot the same percentage on above the break threes, which it was, right? So, I mean, 34%, not a super high percentage shot, but but not an awful shot. And, and, and more to the point, I would argue that there are situations and moments that transcend numbers and, and logical, like this is a good shot, this is a bad shot. I, I feel like Jimmy Butler carried this team for like two straight games, like flat out and, and earned the right to make decisions like that, you know? And he's the type of guy, you know, if you believe in this stuff, you do. And if you don't, you don't. But to me, I believe that there are intangibles and, and they're like, clutch players and the clutch gene and i i just think he had his killer mode on and he just thought i'm going to put this up and it's going to go in and it didn't go that way uh good shot in my books yeah and i'm going also on top of that if he takes it to al horford it scores the layup like did the heat could the heat have even fielded five players in overtime like i think maybe they get blown out in overtime because they were so dead i think it's also to your point about caring for two games he was carrying them that game i mean he looked gassed i think it's it's one of those you live and die by him and in that moment it's like you got to hit that shot to win because even if they tie i strongly believe the celtics win in overtime so then yeah well, I think I, I tweeted this and it's kind of where I stand on it. Jimmy Butler did the thing you do at the end of a tight, long, tiring pickup game where it's like win by two and all of a sudden everyone starts jacking, you know, threes and two pointers so they can just end the game because they just, yes. it's like, it's, hey man, like, let's just get the shot. Let's end the game. Let's get a sip of water. And like, you know, that's, that's really how it felt to me and I think that was the right call because we all knew the Celtics were the better team. And the reason why basketball, the better team usually wins is because there's so many possessions that the better team, the more talented team has so many more opportunities to let that come to the top and like kind of strip out bad luck or good luck. You add five more minutes to that game. That's five more minutes that the Celtics can be like, we're the better team. And, to both your guys' point, Butler played every fucking minute, right? Like, if he's like, guys, I can, I said I was going to give you 48 insane minutes. I didn't say 53. He, he made the right choice because at the end of the day, he's basically saying, I'm on a bum knee. I took the craziest painkillers that exist, you know, probably breaking certain laws to do so. And he's just out there saying, I'm going to win or lose this game. And hey, like, would we have said anything if it been Steph Curry? No. <laughs> but that goes back to the thing of like, who's a better three point shooter? No, I know. But, it, but it, yes, it, I know what you're saying. Or if LeBron, I guess if, well, if LeBron had done it, we would, we would have just killed him because it's LeBron. And if ESPN <laughs> would have melted if LeBron <laughs> had taken that three and missed it. Oh, man. <laughs> Okay, well, one more Jimmy Butler conversation because we love Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Buckets. 
even though my older brother says Jimmy Buckets is the most uninspired nickname. And I reminded him, most players' nicknames today are just their initials with their number. Those are the most uninspired. All right. So did Jason Tatum actually deserve the Larry Bird trophy over Jimmy Butler? I laid some stats out for you guys. Now I want to hear your opinions. Should Jimmy Buckets have won that award for basically putting the team on his back? No. Broke his fucking leg. You, you, you take the lead, man. So when they, when they first announced that these new uh, awards, trophies were coming out, I sort of was hoping that it would be, I guess, an example of the, the best player in the playoffs, not necessarily like what the NBA Finals has turned into, where it's like they'll give it to the player who maybe had the best closing, closing game. So I think Jimmy Butler deserved an award for being the most important player in the Eastern Conference playoffs. Um, I know that's not exactly the question you're answering. I guess I just have, I also have like a little bit of a hard time giving an award to the losing player, even though it makes sense. Um, it's like the LeBron James winning when, you know, his teams lose, like he should have won the MVP in like all of those finals against the KD Warriors. Um, so I'm doing a cop out. I'm fine with Tatum winning it because they won. But also if you were awarding that to the best or most important player for the whole playoffs, I think Jimmy Butler wins it. I like it. Yeah. I, I think that's a great take. I, I too would lean on the side of like just rewarding winning. So for that reason, I, I would have given it to Tatum, especially when statistically they're very close, right? You, you, you've got the numbers laid out here. I, I won't read everything out verbatim, but Butler's got a slight edge in points per game. Tatum got him on rebounds and assists per game and effective field goal percentage. Uh, in spite of all that, Butler's got the better game score, which I, I'm not really sure how that's calculated or I'm a little bit surprised by that. But, I mean, Tatum, you know, his team won. I would also say it's not a great way to give the inaugural Larry Bird Award to the losing team, you know? Like, it, like it sets a precedent right off the bat. And I, I think it makes more sense to just give it to the team that advanced. Time out, James. I know you're older than me, but basketball history lesson. The first finals MVP went to who? Jerry West on the losing team. Oh, yeah. And That's guess true. what's That's happened true. since then? Never fucking happened again. A guy on That's the losing team won finals MVP. Funny. So it's funny how immediately disprovable my argument was on that <laughs> one, actually. But yeah, it was set a bad precedent, man. You just you sound like far right politicians. It was set a hard precedent. That was that was probably like the meanest insult I could have thrown on above the break. Um, so I think the Jimmy Butler kind of like was robbed thing was a little bit of a recency bias just because the last two games of that series where the heat looked dead and he came back to life and almost won that series those last two games it conveniently erased the two three and a half ish games prior to that where he was really 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 bad and ineffective right and so tatum was slightly better in terms of his efficiency from the field. The scoring was negligible. The reason why Butler is a better game score than uh, Tatum is that Tatum played far, far more minutes, right? I think he averaged like 43 minutes per game. Butler was at like 37 because he missed an entire second half. But I just want to highlight this one little statistic that I thought was just 
fucking insane. It goes to why Butler is probably the one of the most underrated superstars in the league because I don't think most people think of him as a superstar, even though routinely in advanced metrics, he's a top 10 player like every year. Through that seven-game series, he had eight turnovers. Wow. Eight turnovers yeah. in seven games. Tatum, on the other hand, 33 turnovers in seven games, right? I mean, the secret sauce with Jimmy Butler isn't the scoring, isn't the passing, isn't the defense. They're all good, but it's he does all of that stuff and doesn't turn the ball over. And like it is so rare for a player who's able to score the amount that he does, set up his teammates the way he does, to not cough the ball up. He's just he's low key an efficiency machine, even though he's not like a great jump shooter, which is how most people think of the efficiency. I just wanted to give him his fucking props for that. Eight turnovers. Like a basketball coach is hearing that and he's like, What's what's going on down in my groin? Right? Like he's feeling <laughs> that. He's loving that. All right. We're going to conclude this part with where the heat go from here, but I think we already talked about that. So bye-bye to the heat. Fantastic season. And this is the best part about them getting eliminated. You know, we don't have to hear about anymore. Heat culture. No more heat culture. No mas. Come on, Gary, what's your, before we get off this, what's your opinion on the heat culture thing? Because I find it, I kind of liked it. And then it turned into heat propaganda and I hated it. Um, uh, the only response to that would be, it seems to work. Um, <laughs> it, yes, it's annoying. I think, um, unfortunately the remaining teams in the finals have two of the more annoying fan bases. Yes. Um, I don't want to alienate our listeners. Um, we don't have any, <laughs> but, but that's one of those things where it's like, I find those fans far more annoying than the heat culture stuff. Cause I think it's also kind of taken on sort of this like quirky, ironic, like, you know, hashtag heat culture and Eric Spolstra and Pat Riley, who's obviously the, the, the mastermind behind it. It really does work. They appear to be one of the best run professional sports organizations. And I mean, they're again, like we just talked about, they're a game away from the NBA finals. That's my take. Damn it. That take was really good. I was, (laughs) it it works, which is, which is such a reductive, but great way to describe anything in sports. It's like, he does this, he does this, but it works. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Let's preview this NBA finals because that's what these people come here for. They want to get the big, hard hitting facts slash takes slash rants slash Stephen A. Smith making it sound like the information he's about to tell you is going to save the universe. He really needs to be in a, in a Marvel film, just as the guy that tells the Avengers what they need to do and how they need to do it. I think that would be like, that's the next phase of his career, taking over for Samuel L. Jackson and Nick Fury. Okay, before we get into the nitty gritty, I think we should touch on the injury report because low key i think this could actually really swing the series my favorite player who doesn't have an uninspired name nickname time lord robert williams he had a he had a meniscus surgery suffered the injury towards the end of the regular season and then apparently he's got a bone bruise i think in the same knee and in that game 7 he was practically unplayable his lateral mobility was really weak 
and the Celtics had to make the decision for a guy who'd been so impactful in previous games to basically bench him for most of it. What do you guys think about that? Because I really think Time Lord is what makes that Boston defense like not just special, but that pantheon all-time great defense level. And with a team like the Warriors, where they were able to space it out, run around with all those guards who are so shifty, they're going to force big men to defend them in space. If his lateral mobility is, you know, compromised, that could swing the series. So where are you guys feeling on that one? Go, James. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree that it, that it could swing the series. Um, I, I'm going to save most of my comments because most of them also relate to my prediction, which I assume we're going to go over our predictions and why we think, you know, any given team is going to win. But I'll just say that absolutely, bar none, Williams is, uh, I would say, the best rim protector on Boston. So it's, it's, it's certainly going to be an issue, you know. Uh, I, th- I think that they field a really strong defense with or without him. Uh, but as you said yourself, Nevin, it's like, it's the difference between a strong defense and like historically elite defense with, with a healthy Robert Williams. So I'd be worried about it if I was a Boston fan. Yeah. That was what, uh, what I would say similar kind of the prediction stuff. I'm sure we'll get into it, but, um, playing like a Horford Williams, larger lineup, um, when the warriors appear to want to be as small as possible with Draymond and obviously they have Looney who can, um, fill up some of that space but I think that that was going to be an interesting thing that Boston could potentially deploy to try and mix it up is if they go big or stayed big even if the Warriors were going to try and you know exploit that with Williams and Horford just what kind of matchup problems that would cause for the Warriors and how or if that would force Steve Kerr to do some things that he you know wouldn't necessarily normally want to do if it was up to him yeah well I will say What's interesting is the Warriors crushed the Mavericks with Looney and Draymond, which I thought was, which actually really surprised me because I kind of figured they can go small so well that when the Mavericks were going to go small, they would just say, all right, you want to play that game? We play that game the best. And they just said, no, actually we have a Kevin Hakeem Olajuwon Looney um, in the starting lineup. I knew you'd like that one, James. Um, Okay. So, Two injuries on the Warriors' side, which, while I don't think are as important as one Time Lord injury, I mean, come on, he's Lord of the Time. Like, time is like some dimension. Einstein had some stuff about time, from what I hear. <laughs> Gary Payton II is potentially coming back from that elbow injury. Fortunately, his game doesn't really revolve around having a super functional elbow, so shouldn't hinder his ability to be maybe the best perimeter defender in the NBA. Sorry, Marcus Smart. Um, And then also Andre Iguodala's neck injury. And then Otto Porter Jr., former Bullet. Yeah. Remember when he was great, Guardy? Well, one of my favorite nicknames ever, Playoff Porter. Come (laughs) on. I mean, yes, of course I remember. Oh, man. Well, he's got a foot injury. And actually, we got to digress about this one. I think this is really funny is that Otto Porter came into the league and people complained about how too skinny he was. And by the time this max contract that the wizards gave him and then sent to the bulls was over, he'd gotten so heavy that when he got to golden state, they're like, we, he had to like show up and he's like, they like had like a plan of attack for him to drop weight. So all you guys out there hating on Chet Holmgren saying he's too skinny. It can happen. They can get bigger. And sometimes you don't, like what happens when they get bigger. Otto Porter Jr. is living proof of that. 
do you think do you think the Warriors need these three guys to be healthy? Do you need do you think they need them to play? Like, what's your level of concern about these three dudes and their health? For me, I think it's all win. I mean, I think that it's like the rich are getting richer. If they add Otto Porter, who's going to help space, maybe knock down some shots, they're not living and dying with Otto Porter. Similarly, how I feel about Iguodala, I think he's going to come in. He's going to be a very smart player. He's going to help fire the people up. But I think Gary Payton the second is a little different because if he can come back and be that defender that you're talking about, then that's just one more person to slow down that wing-heavy uh, Celtics team. So again, that's a massive, that would be a massive upside for them. Yeah. I, I would say that I definitely agree that, that Peyton Jr. is, uh, or Peyton the second is, is would be the biggest loss, right? Like if he's unavailable at this point in everybody's respective careers, he's the most important player out of these three. But I would also say this, like if all three of them were hypothetically unavailable for the whole series, I would see that as a big problem. Now, now they're really lacking in depth, right? Like, but realistically, any any one of them back, and they're probably still well equipped to, to beat Boston. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're all solid. You know, they're not between Porter Jr. and Iguodala. Neither of them are really like absolutely vital cogs, but they're both solid rotation players. Yeah, I do agree. If all three were just not going to play, the Warriors would be in trouble. But it appears likely that all three will be able to play. But there is always that question of can like physically what percentage are they right like in that game seven tyler hero came back and then disappeared because it was clear that he wasn't all the way back from that groin injury right foot injuries those things can be tricky you can feel good play flare up the iguodala neck injury i feel like has been nagging him like in some shape or form for a while now and really with Gary Payton Jr. or Gary Payton the second, sorry, not not Junior. Elbow injuries for him, he surprisingly was a really good um corner three-point shooter and also really, really good at finishing at the rim this season. I don't know if you've looked at his field goal percentages, Guardy, but his like at the rim field goal percentages look like Rudy Gobert. It's like, I mean, all he's doing is catching lobs again, open dunks, but like he is he maximized his offensive efficiency to just look amazing. And they're um, electrifying plays that maybe at times should count for more than two points because that's how they feel. They're like yeah. a punch or a hammer yeah. or something. Yeah. It's like whenever Draymond hits a three, it feels like it's worth five points because you're just, it's like, you're like, Oh, well, thank God we got this possession ended with a Draymond three. And that's like, goes in. You're like, what the fuck? Like we're losing yeah. this game. So deflating. Okay. So, I've laid out some stats um, with the Warriors and Celtics defensive, offensive, and net ratings from the regular season and the playoffs. So these two teams are basically tied at one during the regular season in defensive rating at 106.9 points per 100 possessions. Fantastic defensive ratings. Offensively, this is the one that's probably most surprising to the listeners. The Warriors' offense was the 17th-ranked offense during the regular season, 112.5 points per 100 possessions. Granted, their defense was so good, their net rating was fifth at plus 5.6. The Celtics' offense was actually not significantly better, about 1.9 points per 100 possession better, but that was good for seventh at 114.4. 
And they had the second best net rating in the league. That was in a virtual tie with the Phoenix Suns at plus 7.5. When you factor in how much better they were in the second half, this version of the Celtics, I don't, I don't have those numbers, but like they were monsters. The thing I find incredible is that in the playoffs, the Warriors defense has fallen off substantially, but their offense has gone crazy. They have the sixth best best offense out of 16 teams at 111.5 points per 100 possession and their offense but their offensive rating has skyrocketed by four four or five points or so to 117.1 which is the second best and it's only behind the pelicans we touched on earlier who played only six games net rating's been plus 5.6 though they have the exact same net rating in the playoffs as they did in the regular season but they did in a very different way I just kind of want to see what are your feelings about how the Warriors went from being this defensive juggernaut to then suddenly becoming an offensive juggernaut and kind of switching scripts in the playoffs. I guess that, I mean, it's fair to say that they were probably always a sleeping giant on offense, right? Like realistically, it was surprising to me all year that this team's offense was so poor. Uh, The defense you expect but, I mean, you just generally expect that if the Warriors are going to be a strong team, they're going to be a strong two-way team. And, I mean, now we're seeing that in the postseason. Like, the defensive rating throughout the postseason, it's slipped, but it's still strong. And, I don't know, maybe it was maybe it was the absence of Clay, right? Although Clay's not necessarily tearing it up like he used to, but maybe it's just, like, the, the general structure, you know? Like, he's just kind of uh, required for, for, for it to work the way that it usually works. Uh, I don't know. But, I, I mean, I, I think that... Like what we're seeing from the Warriors now is what I would have expected from a good Warriors team versus this defensive-minded team that can't score. And so I'm not really that surprised, you know? Yeah, I agree. And then some of the the Warriors stuff with uh, just their matchups. I mean, that one of the games where the Mavs won, it was like they they hit every single shot they took from the perimeter. Um, some of that uh, Memphis stuff was, for whatever reason, for some of those games, it was like a bad matchup for the Warriors. They just get absolutely blown out where they're down by 55 at one point. So I just, uh, but outside of that, they handled their business. And, and to your point um, with clay, the game six clay on, on offense uh, when he, when he's shooting like that, like you said, the sleeping giant, they're going to be one of the best offenses kind of on planet earth. Yeah. Yeah. I think their best lineups at least offensively, they didn't run all that much during the regular season. And it was primarily just due to like injury where I, I think it was like going in the playoffs there or towards the very end of the regular season, there's like some absurd stat where it's like Steph Draymond and clay have played like seven minutes together all season. And I don't know how, and that probably means they played like zero minutes with Jordan Poole and Andrew Wiggins out there at the same time. So I just think it's interesting that, we're kind of looking at a team that a new team in the playoffs from the Warriors in a sense. And they're looking more like the Warriors that we kind of fantasize about, even though their defense has always been great. Boston, on the other hand, has basically been the same type of team in the playoffs as they were the regular season, right? Their defensive rating is the second best so far in the playoffs. The Bucks were actually a bit better. Um, who they had to face, which probably hurt their offensive rating a little bit. But they're 105.9 points per 100 possession, one point better. Defense tends to tick up a bit in the playoffs. Offensive rating has dropped by two points, but still seventh best. 
Granted, that's out of 16 teams, not 32 at 112.4. But guess what they have the best of? Net rating. Once again, number one net rating, plus 6.5. Warriors, number two net rating in playoffs. Shouldn't be too surprising that the teams that outscored their opponents per 100 possessions the most made it to the finals. But do we want to give the Celtics bonus points for doing that against their slate of opponents? I'm not giving any bonus points. I think their road was um, more challenging than the Warriors, but also we mentioned this before, but um, or before we started taping, like acting like this Brooklyn team was good was a mistake. That was a bad basketball team. Then you don't have Chris Middleton and then nearly every player maybe saved Bam out of Iowa and maybe he had something too on the heat was injured. So it's not to take away from what they did because that, that Bucks team probably could have beaten the Miami heat and then been in the NBA finals. So it was a very hard slate. I'm just not giving bonus points because I've seen a lot of superlatives being thrown around about comparing this to Dirk. I think comparing this to Dirk's 2011 run is insane. Um, just because of the, the things that I discussed previously. And I love that you're bringing up Dirk's 2011 run on the last episode. We were That's talking right. about it. And we oh, were okay, like, good. So yeah, we, di- we digressed into it heavily <laughs> for no reason, really. I, yeah, An incredible really no- run. I mean, it's yeah, the stuff it's, of legends. Yeah, it's a, it's like now over a decade old, but it's still probably like as much as I kind of wanted to see LeBron win that championship just because I hated people's response to the decision. I was like, I was like, well, if, if someone's going to beat him, this Dirk run is definitely, definitely up there. All right. Final bit of data that I did digging up. I wanted to pull up their noticeable regular season strengths and weaknesses between the two teams. And what I found that was interesting is that the Warriors have more noticeable strengths than the Celtics, but they also have more noticeable weaknesses. So during the regular season, the Warriors, unsurprisingly, second in the league in three-point attempt rate, third in the league in effective field goal percentage, which when you think about it, it's kind of absurd that they had the 17th ranked offense because effective field goal percentage is like maybe the best predictor of offensive efficiency. Unsurprisingly, hitting your shots is good for offense. This is why you come to above the break. So you can learn these really (laughs) insightful, deep analytical statistical nuggets. They had the second best defensive effective field goal percentage explains the great defense. Don't let your opponents hit shots. And I think this one is the most surprising that people would not expect about this Warriors team. They were second in defensive rebounding percentage. That is amazing. I mean, that's how you build championship defense. Stop shots from going in and then collect it. Celtics, on the other hand, their only thing where they were ranked in the top five was effective defensive field goal percentage, and it was the best in the league. So do you think, whose strengths would you rather have? going into this series? I, I feel like that question really lends itself to like, who do you think is going to win the series? No, <laughs> Which, no not necessarily. Cause we haven't gotten to the weaknesses yet. Oh, okay. Well, the warriors. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good one. <laughs> I'm going warriors as well. All right. Well, that's, that's why I set this one up. I know what I'm doing here guys. So <laughs> yeah, the warriors have the more intriguing, enticing strengths. But now let's get to their fucking weaknesses, right? Their Achilles heels. You got two of them at least. So the Warriors' weaknesses, where I get, I 
chose weaknesses as bottom 10 rankings, mainly because the way I see it, playoff teams, if you're in the bottom 10 of something, that's a weakness for a playoff team. All right. Free throw attempt rate was 23rd in the league. This team did not get to the line. Free throws are really nice because they're free. Everyone likes free stuff. This is the big one. Turnover percentage was 29th in the league. They coughed the ball up a ton. And not only did they not get to the free throw line a lot, their free throw attempt to field goal attempt for their opponents, so essentially how often they commit shooting fouls or fouls after they you know, are in the bonus, was 22nd in the league. The only bottom 10 ranking the Celtics had was free throw attempt rate, which was one spot higher than the Warriors at 22nd. So now that we have their strengths and weaknesses, what do which team do we like more? Let's start making picks. Which team do we like more? Do we like the Warriors being really good at a lot of things and kind of shitty at other things? Or do we like the fact that the Celtics aren't really bad at anything, but aren't super great at a bunch of things? Start out, James. James. Or, yeah, it's James. You both said James. James, go ahead. Come on. All right, then. Peer pressure. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I, I'm predicting a Warriors win. Uh, probably in six or seven. I, I expect a good series. I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I've got two reasons. One is a little more basketball-y, and the other one is a little more like uh, psychological, maybe. Basketball-wise, I personally can't help but think about the 2017-18 Rockets. Probably because I think about them every day, right? <laughs> but, you know... Time um... out, time out, time out. <laughs> you gotta give, give Guardy some background on... I guess, does this like... It's like the one that got away, but it's a basketball. It's the one that got team. away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, we should have we should have won, but Chris Paul's hamstring. But it's it's actually instructive. You know, I'm just a diehard Rockets fan for a long time, right? And and they haven't won a championship uh, quite in my fandom, so that's why it stings, you know. But you guys are Wizards fans, so I shouldn't I, I shouldn't take too much time to complain. Thanks, we got James. Harry Potter. We got Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we're all Wizards fans in that sense. <laughs> so okay. The Rockets, like, they built that team to counter the Warriors, right? And they did it by stacking uh, strong perimeter defenders who could survive switches, like, on to big men, right? I look at this Boston team. I think they're structured almost, like, inversely. They are stacked with strong rim protectors who could survive switches on the perimeter. But I don't think that's going to be as effective against the Warriors, right? I, I, I have a feeling that Al Horford might get played off the floor. I say that as him being one of my favorite players of all time, but you know, he might be a little slow to hang with this Warriors offense. Uh, and I know Daniel Tice is getting played off the floor. Right. And if Robert Williams isn't healthy, I know he's getting played off the floor too. So suddenly I'm, I'm not sure that, that the Celtics are going to be able to play the, the majority of the guys that led to, to this, you know, like all world defense, right. They'll have Marcus smart, but I don't think Marcus smart, you know, no man can guard Steph Curry, especially when he's flanked by Clay Thompson and Jordan Poole. So I don't think that's going to be enough, right? Uh, Jalen Brown has a reputation as a good defender, but the metrics have actually borne out that he hasn't really been one for a few years. But I'm a big fan of Brown, and maybe he can lock down in the moment, but he's not like an elite perimeter stopper. So I, th- I think this Warriors team is kind of designed to to beat this Celtics defense, right? I think the Celtics defense was designed to stop Giannis, which it was it, it did a good job. But, I, but the Warriors are, uh, you know, an entirely different proposition, right? And then just quickly, I would say that, you know, the Warriors have been here. They've got a little more experience on, on the intangible side of things, like, the, like they're champions. And I, I think that's likely to be an advantage as well. 
Yeah. Um, right before you jump in, Guardy, about the experience, I saw like an ESPN stats and info thing. The Celtics have zero games of finals experience. And I think the Warriors, it was like 137 combined games. Yeah. Now you're just you're just pandering to the old man crowd with that. So I just hope you know that you're shitting on the youth and you will be forsaken. Go ahead, Gary. Sorry. I agree with a lot of uh, what you're saying, just in terms of um, them having more experience, the defensive issues that uh, Tice and an older Al Horford might have. But one thing I'm interested to see is in reverse, how do the Warriors handle uh, this wing lineup where we could call Marcus Smart. I know he's functions as their point guard, but smart Brown Tatum. How are the warriors clay Steph pool going to, cause you can't hide them all. And clay from at least my eye test is not the defender that he was. He doesn't seem to be moving laterally as, as well. And so I just think that those wings are going to put a lot of pressure on that warriors defense and Draymond green can only do so much uh, bring Gary Payton back will be good. So uh, I still think the Warriors win the series, but I, I think that that's going to be an issue. Maybe I'm going to be totally wrong. They win in four games, but uh, just the wings, the wing strength of the Celtics and the fact that this Celtics team, I don't have the stat exactly, but this Celtics team, since Steve Kerr took over the Warriors, the Celtics have had some considerable success. Um, and then Marcus Smart has done as good a job against Steph Curry it's like when they call people like the Kobe stopper or the LeBron stopper. It's like, okay, what are we talking about here? Yeah. But, um, yeah. Nevin, can I jump back in before you jump in? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. You know I don't like talking. <laughs> you hate talking. Yeah, no, that you, you, good points all around there. And, and it gets me thinking, you know, one way the Celtics could maybe um, circumvent the issues that, that I was worried about is by going small. Like maybe we're going to see lineups with uh, Grant Williams at the five. Like, uh you know, maybe, right? Williams, Tatum, Brown, Smart, Derek White. That, 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 that's a lineup that, that can go in the complete opposite direction. It, it would be ironic because the Celtics have gotten this far by going kind of big. So I actually think this small versus big discussion might be where this finals hinges on. Who, who picks the right card, right? I, I, don't, I think it's very, very interesting where it's like, I think for the Warriors to maximize their offense, they need to go small. But I do think when they do that, they leave themselves susceptible on the offensive glass because this got me thinking. When we were talking about their noticeable strengths during the regular season, the Warriors' defensive rebounding percentage was second best in the league. I think it was like around 80-something percent. In the playoffs, their defensive rebounding percentage is at 77%. And it's about, let me do the math. One, two, three, four, five. It's about eighth best, right? So they've been middle of the pack this playoffs in their defensive rebounding percentage. And it seems to me where the trade-off for them defensively for offense is in the defensive rebounding. And I just think if you're the Celtics, the question is, is it better to just say, kind of do what the Bucks did last year to the Suns where they said, Fuck this noise. We are just going to brutalize you guys on the offensive glass because they have the personnel to do it. If, the, if Time Lord, his knee is good enough that he can survive switches, Al Horford, they figure out a way so he doesn't get exposed consistently. You have those two guys, plus, as you've touched on, the size of their, 
their backcourt and their wings going to have a massive size advantage. Maybe the game is just, hey, let's go win the possession battle by like 10 every night because we know the Warriors are going to turn it over. That beautiful offense, it's kind of just a function of it, and it's what makes it so exciting. But if they're saying, we're going to play tough defense, we're going to get in their shit, we're going to force turnovers, get in transition, and we're going to throw up some bricks, but we're going to grab a bunch of offensive rebounds. I wonder if that could be where the series swings, but conversely, it's like, oh, they're too big and they just can't defend. And I think it's going to be, the series is going to come down to when Kerr and Udoka pick and choose how to counter that and balance those two things. And I think this is going to make this series really interesting because going into it, we have no fucking idea what's going to work. One thing, James, before, if you're going to jump in, that's actually why one of the X factors, whatever you want to call them, beyond the Steph, Clay, Draymond guys, is I think Andrew Wiggins. Because I think he has the size, especially if they're going to go small, you're going to need Wiggins to be getting some boards. And he's gotten some key offensive rebounds in this run. And like had, obviously, when he scores... 20 plus and whatever, 15 plus, that's that's great for you. But because of his size, I think they'll need him to grab some of those boards. And if he's able to do that, then it sort of counters some of the stuff that the uh, Celtics would be trying to take advantage of if the Warriors are going to go smaller. Yeah, so true, man. It, it, it's interesting. You, like, yeah, um, it's going to be about matchups, really, which I guess most playoff series is there when you boil it down. But like bo- both these teams are versatile. Um Nevin, you make a good point in that the Celtics have really more options to go big than the Warriors do. So, you know, Boston can try to beat Golden State at its own game, or they can try to counter them by, by crushing them on the glass and, and, and being too big for them. It's going to be interesting, man. I, I, I'm picking the Warriors in seven, but, like, I'm really not confident, though. Gardy, you're picking the Warriors as well? Yeah, I'm picking them in seven. Um, I had a little inkling of Warriors in six, but I, I'm going seven. Just I also personally wanted to go seven, but... Yeah, I'm going Warriors as well. Okay, I'm going with the Celtics for two important reasons. First reason, you two bitches pick the, the Warriors. Someone's got to disagree. It's not, you can't do this without someone saying, you're fucking wrong, right? You can't, everyone just can't agree. What is this? All right, this, this is politics, baby. We all got to disagree about something, all right? Also, I firmly believe that this Celtics team is different. I think we're witnessing the birth of an unfortunate new dynasty that was going to make Bill Simmons be incredibly smug and it won't, it won't be pretty. And I will say this Boston area sports fans, they've had it too good. And they're, it's a, it's about to stay green pastures. I think this is about to be a dynasty. They've been the best team in this regular, they were the best team in the regular season. And they did that being basically a 500 and playing like a 500 team for the first 35 ish games. And then since then they've been dominant, like a dynasty is they went through super tough playoff series. They weathered storms. They were the better team in each series. And the last two that went seven, they let those get to seven, not because they got outplayed, but because they made some mistakes. Maybe they haven't learned from them. And the Warriors get this. But I just really think that we're about to witness potentially teams going to make multiple finals in a row, maybe win multiple championships. And that's, I'm just going to stick with that feeling. I picked them against the Bucks for that. I can't, like, 
I wanted them to beat Miami because I think we all agree this series probably wouldn't have been as interesting if Miami was there. Jimmy Butler would have just been out of gas. It, you know, horrible. All right. There's two things before we gather that I want to quickly touch on. Which fan base do you dislike more? The Warriors fan base or the Celtics fan base? Because that is really what this is going to come down to for rooting interest because you just want the less annoying fan base to win, right? At the end of the day? No, that might not for be me. An, that might be an impossible question to answer <laughs> <laughs> because they are annoying for different reasons. I'll, James, I'll let you get to the, your point in a sec. The, the Celtics have just this since 2000 have endured too much success. They're smug. They're pretentious. They always can hold up the trophies, which they won. That's great. On the flip side, you have the Warriors who a lot of them, and I went to school out in California, a lot of them have not been riding with this Warriors franchise since they were bad, and that's okay. Um, They, I think, are also one of the most entitled fan bases. And I don't like the way that Another trophy, which I think both of these teams are incredibly successful. They're going to be great. Whoever wins is going to be, I'm going to be happy they won. Um, But the fans will bring up all the legacy stuff about this being one of the greatest dynasties ever and this and that. They seem very online and very tuned into takes culture, which frustrates me about that fan base. Yeah, I, I think very online is a great way to describe the Warriors <laughs> fan base, man. Yeah, well, it's um, Silicon Valley, man. The tech industry makes sense. That does make sense. That's right. If it's fan base versus fan base, I'm rooting for the Celtics. Uh, the Warriors, I agree. They're so entitled. I, I saw this post going around about like, oh, it's been two long years. You know, but we're finally back in the finals. It's like, <laughs> motherfucker. Like, I, I've been rooting for the Houston Rockets since I was an eight-year-old, right? And there was one season where we had a chance to win a championship. And we're a pretty good, like, franchise for that matter. You know, like, I can't even complain to a Hornets Great fan. franchise, or, or honestly. Yeah, exactly. But yet, yet still, you know, we almost never have a chance to win the championships. Like, oh, you had two years where, where you didn't get to the finals? That sucks. So that angers me more than anything that Boston fans do. So. I know. Guardian and I have had like 29 consecutive years where like, if we make it out of the first round, that's a big, big, big fucking deal. Um, you remember, I guess we would have been around like 11, 12, 13 middle school. It was like we had middle school when those Gilbert Arenas teams they made it out of the first round for like the first time since the seventies. And they like gave out shirts, like in the stadium, <laughs> like commemorating, like we made it out of the first round. And of course some like national pundits were like kind of making fun of it, but they also can see it's like, this is a big deal for this franchise. So I agree. These two fan bases are super entitled. I just don't like the warriors entitled fan base as much. And I agree with this in this all the same ways. And that it's like, you know what? Most of you didn't go through the shit. At least most of the Celtics fans, when the Celtics were bad, were still Celtics fans. They went through the highs. They went through the lows. But so many of these Warriors fans, the, they just went through the highs. They jumped on when times were... They couldn't even jump on when it was the We Believe team, which I loved. I love Dirk. I love those Mavericks teams. But I love those We Believe teams that upset them in the first round. They didn't even jump on then. If you can't jump on when there's the We Believe and ride through Monte Ellis jacking up long twos five seconds into the shot clock, like, you don't deserve all this success. All right. Before we leave, 
I spent way too much time doing this little thing that I did. So when I was previewing this, I saw the win, the win totals for these two teams. Boston won 51 games. I said, oh, that's not that much for a team to make the finals. Obviously, they're great. And there's reasons why they didn't win more games. We, we've talked about that. And then Golden State only won 53. And that's a combined total of 104 wins. And I just thought to myself, you know, that seems kind of low for two teams to meet in the finals to combine for only 104 wins. So I excluded the past two seasons because they were 72 game seasons and they're compressed. So I didn't want to do win percentages just because, you know, in a compressed season, your win percentage is going to be lower just because like the season's more of a gauntlet. So starting in 2019, I went back to try to find a, a finals with a comparable win loss or the same or lower total wins between the two teams. This is the lowest combined wins non-lockout, non-shortened seasons since the 95 finals with, guess whose favorite team? The 47-win Houston Rockets, who won the championship over, I believe, the 57-win Orlando Magic. And this got me thinking, that's tied. Let's go back and find the one with the lower total, 1981, when the 62-win Boston Celtics beat the 41 Houston Rockets, which, and this one doesn't get brought up enough. Moses fucking Malone led a 40-win team to the goddamn NBA Finals. That man, he's a three-time MVP. He won a championship with Philadelphia. I think he made two or three finals with them, or maybe just one. They brought him in. That was He was one of the first guys to be like a free agent, free agent type of dude. That guy does not get enough respect. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to keep going further back because that that series had a 62-win team, right? These teams are 53 and 51. It wasn't, basically, this is the worst series in terms of the two teams' win-loss record since the 79 finals and the 78 finals. I think 79 was Bullets and Seattle Supersonics, which the Supersonics won. And then 78 was also the Bullets and the Supersonics. And this one is the worst NBA Finals in, I think, a post-ABA NBA merger. 44 wins and 47 wins. So 40-plus years since we've had this bad of an NBA Finals in terms of regular season win-loss. I like it, surprising? Is that surprising? It's surprising, but I like it because I think finally we don't just have a LeBron-led team taking on you know, the Warriors dynasty or whomever the, 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 uh, us, one of the Spurs teams. So I kind of like it. Uh, maybe I'm just interpreting them, the stats, how I want to interpret them. <laughs> um, but to me, it seems like, okay, it's a little more even. It's not as top heavy as it seemingly has been, you know, the last 15 years. Yeah. You know what I think is my explanation would be this. All the should have been world beaters just weren't right. Like the nets absolutely collapsed. The, the Lakers, you Don't know, say I, mean, Lakers. I, think a lot, I think a lot of us anticipated, but like, like almost in terms of the natural order of the universe, they should have been like, they're the Lakers and they have two former MVPs and Anthony Davis, you know, uh, and predictably it didn't work out. The Bucks, I felt like kind of coasted all season, you know, and then ultimately they probably, there's a good chance they'd be here. If Chris Middleton had been healthy. That's a whole other topic, but like, I, I felt like there was a little championship malaise. 
And then there was one more team. Well, the Celtics were, you know, they started the year off kind of shit. And then they were, they were dominant for a long stretch. If they'd been dominant the whole year, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So it was just kind of a bunch of weird circumstances, I think, this year. Yeah, I actually, I think the win totals are suppressed for like a few key factors. I think the first in the Eastern Conference in particular, because no one was running away with it, all the teams that were right there didn't feel the need to try to like push on to kind of keep up where it's like, if you're all in that like same win total where you're like, well, if we just have like a good push the last two weeks, getting ready for the playoffs, we can get the one seed. So I feel like that suppressed the Eastern conference win total. And then in the West, there's just so many injuries, right? Like, will we be having this conversation if the nuggets had been completely healthy or, I mean, imagine how good the Clippers could have been if they were completely healthy so I think those factors kind of like would the Warriors have won more games if to be the three seed, they would have needed like 57 wins instead of 53. I think that's a possibility. And so I'm thinking next year, like the win totals, we're going to be like, we're going to be like, oh, this looks more like a normal NBA finals, more normal win distributions. Because for the Warriors, the Suns went on that what, like they started the season like one and three, and then they won like, 18 straight games and they just kept winning. So it kind of was like the one seed was out of, out of their grasp and no one's fucking scared of a young team like the uh, Grizzlies. So I think that kind of let it go, but I do agree. It is interesting that the win totals aren't as high as we're used to. And I don't know if that has anything to do with the quality of the team or it's just this season, we had a ton of injuries and there wasn't that pressure to win more games. Let's let's bring it home, boys. I think we're done here. Oh yeah, I'm tired. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for sticking around. Thank you, Guardy, for coming on. We might ask you back. Depending Thank on you how guys for having me. Oh yeah. Huh. If we don't get a lot of views. Thanks. I'm sorry. Listen to this. You're dead to me. <laughs> no, absolutely. I really appreciated it. Um, it was a blast, and I cannot wait to watch this series. Yeah, I think we all can agree on that. All right. This was episode 24 of Above the Break. Remember to like, subscribe, rate, review, check us out on the YouTubes. I will try to get videos up. I don't always because I don't make any money off this. So when you don't make any money off stuff and you're editing podcasts and you got a job and you got to write bullshit about the fucking rockets, sometimes you have to do that. But if you're interested in the top five prospects in this year's NBA draft, I will be publishing an article on Space City Scoop very soon. I used a meta big board where I took 11 different big boards, averaged it out, made my own big board, and then ranked the prospects. Give a little breakdown of what everyone else is saying, you know, synthesize what the experts are saying and make myself look smart. Give you a little bit of statistical background and, you know, kind of show where the difference is. If you want a little preview of it, Paulo Bancaro is actually the number one rated prospect according to my meta big board. Yeah, an average Get your rocket, baby. Yeah, average prospect ranking of second overall. And what you'll see in this draft is I did last year as well. Cade Cunningham was a clear number one pick. Everyone else was behind it. This one, Bancaro, Chet, and Jabari, all very, very close. It's between two and 2.55. So if you have a top three pick, Rockets fans, you're getting number one overall pick quality player for this draft. So before we leave, Guardy, who are the Wizards taking? Where the Wizards taking? Oh, I have no idea. Is they got to trade up. Yes, it's <laughs> going to disappoint unless they trade up. 
Do you want Dyson Daniels? Because I kind of do. I think they should package Bradley Beal and get as many first round picks as they possibly can. I love it. I've been saying that for ages. All right. We're going to get the fuck out of here. I always keep us on too long. Guardy, thank you so much for stopping by. As always, this is Nevin Brown and James Piercy and and Gardner Royce. Yeah, there we go. We'll be back next week. Maybe we'll have some finals reactions. I don't know. We, we play it fast and loose with the scheduling. All right. As always, peace. Peace.